Well, good morning. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And it's my privilege to welcome you here this morning and also to lead us in the study of God's Word. And so if you have a Bible or you want to grab one from the seat back in front of you, we'll be going to a couple of different places this morning, but we'll be starting in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17, uh, which is on page 807 if your Bible is like mine. Uh, and as you turn there, uh, let's, let's pray together. And so, Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to gather together as your people to worship you. And Father, as we read from your word now, I pray that you would just bless this time. Father, I pray that you open our eyes to see things we've never seen before, that you open our ears to hear from you, and that our lives will be changed because of it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, when I was younger, uh, in high school, I forget exactly which age I was, uh, I was challenged by somebody to memorize a chapter of the Bible. Actually, they challenged me to memorize uh, a large uh, section of Scripture. And, and I took them up on this challenge. I said, what do you want me to memorize? And they said, you can decide. You just choose something you want to memorize and go for it. And so I decided I was going to try to memorize as far into the Gospel of Matthew as I could. And I didn't know why I chose Matthew's Gospel. It was the first one. I thought, you know, the story of Jesus, this would be great. And I, I made this commitment. I said, I'm going to memorize as far as I can into Matthew's gospel. And, and then I went home and actually looked at how Matthew's gospel began. And to my great surprise, Matthew's gospel begins with 17 verses of the genealogy of Jesus, which is a list of names <laughs> and oftentimes names that I don't recognize or have trouble pronouncing. And so here I am in this situation. And I thought to myself, well, I made this commitment, so I'm going to just go for it. And, and I can honestly say it must have been really strange to be around me the, those kind of next few days because I'd just kind of be pacing around the house saying, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Zerah and, and so on and so forth, over and over. And, and eventually I got through the whole genealogy. Now, don't ask me to recite it now. I, I wouldn't be able to make it all the way through. But I remember just that constant repetition, that constant, you know, this person was the father of this person or the father of this person. And, and I got to the point where I memorized it. But I can say out of any scripture I've memorized before, that was the most difficult. And I'm going to be honest with you, that was actually the most boring that I've memorized as well. <laughs> okay, just full disclosure. And it was, it was boring at the time because to me it was just a list of names. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes we don't find just lists of names to be very compelling uh, literature. Uh, it doesn't even matter how much you dress it up. And so when I was younger, I, I also took piano lessons. And at my piano teacher's house, there was a, a big diagram of a family tree on her wall. It was this actually really incredible work of art. It was kind of this uh, really ornate and detailed family tree where you had her name with her kids and then her grandparents, great-grandparents, and it went up several generations, actually. And it was an interesting work of art, and I could appreciate the, the visual aspect of it. I could appreciate the artistic side of it. But when I actually read the names, again, it was kind of this experience where it was a little bit boring to, to read these names uh, because I actually hadn't taken the time to dig into the stories behind the names. And I think this is why genealogies can be boring for us, is that if we only see a list of names, but not actually the story behind the names, it's just kind of this exercise of repeating things and repeating names that we don't actually know much about, and we don't actually have any way of connecting them with, with the larger story. But the amazing thing is when you actually know the story behind the names, 
then something like a family tree or something like a genealogy becomes this really powerful visual image that reminds you of that story. See, when I looked at the family tree on the wall of my piano teacher, I saw something that was visually kind of cool, but didn't really have any meaning or significance beyond that. When my piano teacher looked at that same work of art, she saw the art of it, but she also saw an incredible story spanning generations in her family. Uh, She saw years of hardship. She saw World War II. She saw immigration to Canada. She saw choices that were made along the years that led to the place where her and her children were. See, she looked at at that image. She looked at that family tree, but she saw way more than a list of names. She saw a story spanning generations. And I think we see the same dynamic in actually Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. If we look at this and all we see is a list of names, it remains a kind of boring part of, of the story because we have no way of connecting it. But there's something really cool that happens when you actually start to know the story behind the names in this genealogy. Because then you read through these names and it's not just a, an exercise in kind of just reading these names that you don't know anything about. You read these names and you get this window, you get this picture into the story of God and his people that's being told for centuries before Jesus comes. And, and you, you hear a name like Abraham and you have all of a sudden you remember, okay, what happened with Abraham? What was his part in this story? What about Isaac? What about Jacob? What about all these people? And, and you start to see this story unfold that leading all the way up to when Jesus comes and it's this beautiful thing. Now, of course, this morning we don't have time to unpack the full story that we see here behind these names. It would take a long time. In fact, in the, in the January, I'm going to be teaching a course in Willingdon School of the Bible called Old Testament Panorama, and we're actually going to take eight whole weeks to unpack the story behind this genealogy, to look at the story of God and his people leading all the way up to when Jesus is born. Uh, so we don't have time to do all of that today, but what we are going to do is we're going to look at one person in particular, and we're going to look at how she becomes such an important part of this larger story and how the choices that she makes have an impact not only on herself, but on those around her. Uh, We read about her in Matthew 1, verse 5, and and she's just almost mentioned in passing. It says this, And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. The person we're going to be looking at this morning is Ruth. Uh, She's one of the few women that's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And there's actually a book in the Old Testament that tells her story in some detail. And so if you want to turn with me there, uh, Ruth is a smaller book in the Old Testament. It's on page 222. Again, if you grab the Bible from the seat back in front of you. And we're going to be kind of hopping around to different places in the book. So I encourage you to keep it open in front of you as we we continue and, and be ready to kind of refer to that. The, the book is called Ruth. That's the title that we have for the book. But when you start to read it, you realize that Ruth is actually a little bit of an unlikely character to take the prominent place in this story. In fact, if you read the first two verses, she actually doesn't even come onto the scene. And she, she's introduced only after that. So we'll read the first two verses. I'll show you what I mean. It begins like this. In the days when the judges ruled, the land, uh, ruled there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malhan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. 
They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And so, so far, we've, we've kind of had this introduction. We've had this kind of exposition of, of the scene. And so far, there's no mention of Ruth. Uh, instead, we hear about this family who lives in Bethlehem, but because of a famine in the land, they're forced to go to the land of Moab to try to find food and try to find survival away from the land. Uh, and it's, it's this kind of this tragedy of famine that's led them to leave Bethlehem. And we're about to see that tragedy is not even close to being finished with this family. And it's in the midst of that tragedy that Ruth is introduced into the story. We read in verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malhan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Notice that Ruth is introduced in the story really quickly there, uh, just as one of the wives of one of the sons. But the focus is really at this point in the story on Naomi and and the predicament that she finds herself in. Uh, We notice this tragic reversal of everything she experiences in these first four verses in this book. She goes from being a woman who's married, living in the land of Bethlehem with her two sons, Uh, They're able to eat food from the land year after year after year and living with relative peace and security. And then the famine comes and and they're no longer able to farm in the way that they used to. So they leave to the land of Moab. And so now they're out of the land as well. And she loses her husband and she loses her sons. And, And she's now a widow in a foreign land with no heir, no one to look after her in the years of her life. At an age where she can't start another family, she's basically in one of the worst situations a person could be in in the ancient world uh, with really not many options before her that are worth pursuing. Ruth, on the other hand, uh, she's in a pretty bad situation as well, but at least she has some options before her. Right? So Ruth is, is also a widow now. She was married to one of Naomi's sons and that son's dead. So she's a widow, but she's a widow who has a couple options before her that the text talks about. One of her options is that she can go back and live with her parents. Uh, apparently her parents are young enough. She's young enough that she can go and return and live in her, her parents' household and, and have the protection that's afforded her there and the provision that comes along with that. Another option is that she can try to stay in the land of Moab. She can try to remarry and start another family. She's still young enough that this is a possibility for her that she can uh, have another family. And then, of course, her third option is that she can actually stay with Naomi and just kind of go along with her wherever she goes. She can remain part of Naomi's family. But if you're looking at these options before her, Ruth's, the worst decision that Ruth can make from, from most people's perspective would be to stay with Naomi. Because Naomi has absolutely no, nothing to, to offer Ruth. She's in one of the most desperate situations a pe- person could be in in the ancient world. And she's basically saying to Ruth and to Orpah, the two sisters, she's saying, you guys need to leave me alone. You need to go and find somewhere else to live, something else to do, because I'm not going to be anything but a burden to you. Uh, even Naomi recognizes this, and she's trying to push them away, saying, get away from me. You don't want anything to do with me. Don't feel bad. Don't try to, no, just, just leave and, and do your own thing. And, and Orpah goes away, and she does that. But Naomi, or sorry, but Ruth persists, and she says, I'm not going anywhere. And so uh, Naomi uh, pushes even further. In verse 15 of chapter 1, it says, uh, Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
And of course, by all accounts, this is what people would have expected Ruth to do. But look at how she responds in verse 16. Uh, It says this, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Uh, Your outline says this, choices made in critical moments shape our stories. And for Ruth, this is one of those choices and this is one of those moments, one of these defining moments in Ruth's life, a decision that once she makes it, there's no going back. And she makes the decision that would have been the most difficult one at the time to forsake her land, to forsake her family, to forsake the gods that she worshiped growing up, to forsake all of this and join herself to Naomi, to join herself to God's people and to throw herself on the mercy of the God of Israel. To say, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. It's this incredible risk, it's this incredible faith that we see exercised here. Now, in in, in this room, there's some of us who have come from different countries, some of us who have converted to Christianity from different religions, or or maybe uh, some other changes have happened in our life like that. And so you can kind of feel a sense of what what Ruth is going through here, some of the the things that she's experiencing. And and it's actually quite common in in our day and age for people to make decisions like that, for people to, to leave their country, for people to leave the gods of their uh, that they grew up worshiping. In, in the ancient world, this was something that was almost unheard of. Uh, to completely abandon your former way of life to, to pursue something. It was almost unheard of. There were examples, but they're few and far between. Uh, what Ruth is doing here is making this incredibly difficult decision that shows an incredible amount of faith. That's this really powerful moment in the story. Most of us would have recognized these verses because they've been quoted so often in different contexts. It's this powerful moment. I think we're meant to pause for a second and appreciate it. But the reality is once Ruth makes this decision, it's not as if the difficulties go away. In fact, in many ways, this is where the the hard times are going to begin for Ruth and Naomi because now they have each other at least, but they have very little uh, above and beyond that. And so Naomi decides, she's heard that the famine is over in Bethlehem. She heard uh, that the barley harvest is in full swing. And so they decide they're going to make their way back to Bethlehem. And they're going to try to eke out a living any way they can in the land of Bethlehem, where Naomi was originally from. And they arrive back in town and Naomi is in a really dark place. And she's uh, telling people how she's, she's left full and she's come back empty. And basically, Ruth and Naomi have to do whatever they can just to make ends meet. It's possible that Ruth and Naomi, they have a bit of land at this point, that they have land that they can uh, do some farming in. But as I said before, it's time for the barley harvest. They've been gone for 10 years. And so there's, there's nothing that they've planted or nothing that they could hope to harvest from their own fields. Instead, what they have to do is rely on a practice in the Old Testament that's referred to as gleaning. And we read about this in Leviticus 19, verse 9 to 10, just to give a bit of context to what that is. It says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. 
And so the good news for Ruth and Naomi was that there's laws in the Old Testament that made provision for people like them, people who are poor, people who were sojourners in the land. These laws in particular said that when a farmer went to harvest his field, he could harvest most of the field, but he was supposed to leave some of the harvest left at the end of the field for the poor and the sojourners to come and to collect. It was meant to be this way that, you know, he he wouldn't take absolutely everything. He would leave some for the poor, for the sojourners, those who needed something and and needed help. And so the good news, there was laws like this uh, making provision for Ruth and for Naomi. The difficulty, though, is that there's this dynamic we see sometimes happening in the Bible where you have on the one hand the law in the way things are supposed to be. And then on the other hand, you have reality in the way things actually are. And so the reality is, even though there was these laws about gleaning and it's meant to be this really, you know, positive thing, not everybody would have obeyed these laws in the way that they were intended. Uh, you know, as you can imagine today, there would be some people who would say, you know what, this is my land. This is my heart crop. You know, I worked hard for this. I, I'm not going to leave anything. I'm taking it all. And this is, this is ridiculous that we'd have to leave some for those who, who can't take care of themselves. And, and so some people would just say, I'm not leaving anything for the poor. Other times when people were gleaning, they'd been mistreated, uh, assaulted by, by other people in the fields. And so it was this dangerous, uh, dangerous work. And it often was a lot of work for very little reward. Remember, I don't know if you've ever lived in a place where there's, uh, where there's fields or anything like that, but it seems that often it's the crops on the outside of the field that are you know, a bit smaller than the other ones, a bit uh, less taken care of than the other ones. And so Ruth sets out expecting a long day of work for very little in return, hopefully enough to, to be able to eat for the day, hopefully enough to have enough food to survive, but doesn't have many expectations beyond that. And it's in the middle of this day of gleaning, this desperate situation, uh, that Ruth happens to come across the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz becomes a, a main character in the story. We'll hear more about him later. Uh, he's a relative of, of Elimelech, the, the first guy that we read about who's, uh, who was a husband of Naomi. So he, he's a relative, but for right now, that's not as important. For right now, all we need to know is that Boaz shows special kindness to Ruth as she's gleaning. All right, there was these kind of basic requirements for, for gleaning in the ancient world. Uh, Boaz goes above and beyond those. And we read about this in chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young men. Do let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Uh, Later, Boaz tells his workers, uh, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out from the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean and do not rebuke her. Uh, So again, Boaz is going above and beyond what's required of him. Uh, He was supposed to leave a little bit at the edge. He's telling his workers, you know what, leave some right in the middle of the field. In fact, gather it together, bundle it up, and just kind of drop it behind you so that Ruth can come and and collect it. It's kind of this this call for them to be exceptionally kind towards Ruth. He says, don't anybody mistreat her. Don't anyone do anything mean to her or anything like that. In fact, if she's thirsty, let her drink from your canteens. Let her drink from the water that you've brought for, for, for the workers. Uh, This is kind of unheard of uh, way to treat someone who's poor, someone who's a sojourner in the land. And so Ruth even gets a little bit, she's like, what's going on? Why are you treating me so kindly? In verse 10, it says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? 
But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so Ruth says, Boaz, why have you shown me this favor? And Boaz doesn't say, you know, because I think you, you know, you're good looking or anything. Like, uh, it's not this emphatic. Boaz says, I've heard the story of what you've done. I've seen your character. I've heard the sacrifices that you've made, the things that you've done. And I want to I acknowledge that and reward that before the Lord. Uh, Boaz says that Ruth has sought to, to take shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. And it's an image of uh, a mother bird protecting her young underneath her wings. Uh, Boaz sees that Ruth has sought protection and refuge from the Lord, and he wants to reward that. It's this incredible decision that Boaz makes in this moment, something that was not required of him, not even expected of him, but he does it anyways. And so for the moment, for Ruth and Naomi, life is actually pretty good. Uh, Ruth goes out every day during the barley harvest and she's able to glean in these ideal circumstances where everything's kind of just being laid before her. She brings it back to Naomi. They prepare the food and, and she's able to bring back way more than she otherwise would have, even, even to the point where they have an abundance that they don't need to worry about just the immediate next day or, or anything like that. But then something happens and, and the thing that happens is the barley harvest comes to an end eventually all the, all the crops have been harvested. And so now Ruth and Naomi are in a situation where they don't necessarily need to think just about the day-to-day survival. Now they need to think about how are they going to last in the land long-term? How are they going to make it once Ruth isn't able to glean and have this daily supply of food? How are they going to make it in the long-term? So far, Ruth's done a lot of hard work gleaning in the field. She's kind of done her end of things. And now it's Naomi's turn to come up with a plan that's going to see them in the land long-term thriving. And her plan is based upon two things. It's based upon, first of all, the kindness of Boaz and his righteous character that he's shown so far. Her plan is hoping that he's going to continue to act that way. And the plan is also based upon the fact that Boaz is a close relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Now, we talked about the laws for gleaning before. In the ancient world, there was always this expectation uh, among God's people that God's people would help the poor, the sojourners, the widows, the orphans. There was this expectation that this was something that God's people did. But there was an especial, a special expectation put on the people that were related to people who were poor and sojourners and so forth. In other words, if you were part of God's people, there was a certain expectation placed upon you. But if you had relatives that were going through difficult times, the expectations were even higher for you. And we, we, we basically have here Naomi's plan is, is relying on the fact that, okay, Boaz is a relative. There's certain things that are expected of him. And we're hoping that because he's righteous, because he's kind, he's actually going to follow through on these. Now, there's two expectations in particular. The first is that he would act as a redeemer. Now, the word redeemer is one of those ones that we usually you know, refer just to Jesus and don't really use it in any other ways. But in the ancient world, the redeemer was someone who would buy something back. And so the situation often that would come up was that if someone came, became so poor that they had to sell their land to survive, in other words, if they came to the point of poverty where they said, in order just to make ends meet, I need to sell my land to survive, someone in the family who would be called the redeemer would be able to buy back the land for their, for their family member and return it to them. 
In other words, they would redeem the land. They would buy back the land for their family member in distress. We read about this in Leviticus chapter 25, uh, verse 25. It says this, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. He shall buy it back and give it to his brother. And this is exactly what Naomi and Ruth are in need of, because as we'll soon find out, they've come to the place where they're actually going to have to sell their land in order to survive. And so Naomi hopes that Boaz will be a redeemer, someone who will buy back the land so that it can stay with them and they won't have to, to, to move from the land in order to survive. And so that's one of the expectations. The second expectation comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, where we read this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and he has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name, uh, succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And the reality that Naomi and Ruth are facing is that if they both die without children, the family line ends with them. Uh, the, that branch of the family tree is, is over with them. And so the hope is that as, as the nearest relative to Elimelech, Elimelech will take Ruth as his wife and help uh, to, to have a family through her. Uh, so Naomi has a, a plan that she sets in place. And what we read in chapter 3 is the execution of this plan. And it's one of, these, one of these moments in Scripture where I'm sure to the original readers it would have made a lot, a lot of sense and just been kind of a normal thing. To us, it, the details are a little bit interesting, a little bit strange to our modern ears. And so it, this chapter starts off with Naomi telling Ruth, okay, get, wash yourself, get your best clothes on, anoint yourself, and go down to the, the threshing floor where Naomi, uh, sorry, where Boaz is, is going to be sleeping tonight, and here's what you need to do. And so in chapter 3, verse 6, we'll pick up the story. Uh, we read this. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So here Ruth is asking Boaz to do the things that we've just been talking about. Uh, she's asking Boaz to be a redeemer, to redeem them. She's also asking Boaz in, in a subtle way to be uh, her husband. It, it's interesting. So she says to him, uh, put your wings over me because you are a redeemer. That phrase, put your wings over, we, we saw that phrase used earlier talking about God, right? And it's this image of protection, this image of provision. And so Ruth is asking for those things from Boaz to be the one who protects her, to be the one who provides for her. But it's also, there's an interesting play on words that some commentators will point out. So the word wings here is also a word that can be used to translate uh, how we would describe the end of a garment or the corner of a blanket or something like that. And in, in this time, the thinking was a husband and wife, they slept under one blanket because they were one flesh. And so here Ruth is saying, spread your garment over me or spread your wings over me for you are my redeemer. In other words, she's saying, would you do all these things that we're hoping for? Would you be the one to redeem? Would you be the one to have a family and start that with me? And it's this really bold, 
bold question that Ruth is asking. She's putting herself out there. She's completely uh, coming to, to Boaz and saying, would you do these things for me? And Boaz responds in chapter uh, 3, verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For, my, uh, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So we have this really interesting response by Boaz where Ruth has just made this incredible request to Boaz. She said, Boaz, would you be a redeemer? Would you spread your wings over me? Would you be the one who does all these things? And Boaz says, absolutely, I'll do all these things, except there's someone else who might do them instead. It's kind of this surprising, like, where's this other person coming in from all of a sudden? And and especially if we've been kind of seeing this relationship develop between Ruth and Boaz, and we're kind of vested in this, Boaz says, yeah, I'd be happy to do all these things for you. But there's actually a relative that's even closer in relation to Elimelech. And he actually has the right to redeem if, if, if that's something that he wants to do. And so we're, we're so close to having that resolution of the story, but there's this last kind of hiccup in the way of what's going to happen with this other relative. Is this relative going to be kind like Boaz? Is this relative going to be mean-spirited? What's going to happen to Ruth and Boaz? And so Boaz sends Ruth home with an amazing amount of food, and then he goes to settle this matter once and for all, and he goes to the gates of the city. Now, when you picture the gates of the city, I want you to picture... A, a massive wall with big wooden doors in the middle of them. <laughs> so we have a, you know, obviously this is not to the time period or, or anything like that, but uh, it's a good visual representation for us, and I'm glad that we built the set just for this message, which is, uh, <laughs> that's why we did it. So, uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, but, but Boaz went to the gates of the city because the gates of the city were a place where you, you, everyone basically was, was coming and going. And so in some cities, especially in the ancient world, the idea was everyone would sleep within the, the city limits at night, but then often go out through the gates in the morning to do whatever the work they have to do in the countryside, in the fields, in the threshing floors, etc. And it's kind of opposite of what we do these days. So most of us will, will come to work in the city and then go out to, to our houses in the countryside. It was kind of flipped in the ancient world. And so Boaz thinks, okay, if I want to meet someone early in the morning, I'm going to go to the city gates because that's where everyone's coming and going. And because of this, this is also the place where the city elders would often sit and meet and do official city business. This is where a transaction would take place. This is where uh, all, all kinds of uh, just things within city life would happen. And so Boaz sets out in the morning to the city gates. And just as he plans, he sees this relative coming uh, to go about his daily business. And he calls him aside and he says, here, let me explain this situation to you. Let me explain this, and, and we'll see if, if he wants to be the Redeemer or not. In chapter 4, verse 3, we, re, we read this. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, Tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Now, if we were surprised that Boaz even introduced this guy in the first place, now I think we're supposed to be really surprised that this guy's agreed to be the redeemer, right? Doesn't that kind of, on the one hand, we might say, well, that's good. She's, you know, someone's going to redeem the lamb. But on the other hand, we're thinking, no, it's supposed to be Boaz. It's supposed to be him. And the question is, why is this guy all of a sudden agreeing to redeem the land? Uh, is this guy just like Boaz? Is he kind? Does he just have this great character? Is he uh, this loving person? Or is there something else going on? And I think actually as we keep reading, we'll realize there's something else that's driving his motivation here. You see, in, in, in this context like this, when someone would redeem the land or buy it back, it would be someone buying back the land for their relative, for somebody else. And so there was no like immediate, uh, you know, reward that this person would get other than the satisfaction of helping a relative in need, right? So you'd buy this back, you'd give it back to Naomi and it would be Naomi's land. It wouldn't be your land. And so it's this kind of financial uh, blessing that you're giving to someone with no hope of getting something in return. Except in this situation, things are a little bit different because Naomi is a widow, And Naomi is at an age where this man thinks it's not likely she's going to have any more kids. And so in this situation, it might be a little bit different. I think what he's thinking is, if I buy this land back and give it to Naomi, she'll have it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years until she dies. And when she dies with no heir, it's going to come back to me. And so he's thinking, sure, I'll do this nice thing for Naomi. I'll have, you know, everyone's going to think, what a hero this guy is buying this land for, for this poor widow. 20 years later, it's going to come back to me and I'll have the land. And in the ancient world, this is important because it's actually really hard to acquire more land than you had. Now, it's really hard these days to acquire more land than you have, but for different reasons back then. In those days, the idea was that land was supposed to stay within the family that it was given to. And even if you sold land every 50 years, it would have to be returned to its original owner in the land of Jubilee, or in the year of Jubilee, uh, every 50 years, or at least that's how things were supposed to happen. And this was so that the, the poor wouldn't accumulate and push everyone else out of the land, or the rich wouldn't accumulate and push everyone else out of the land. And, and so the idea is it's really hard to accumulate uh, land as part of your inheritance to be passed on for generation to generation. But here this man sees an opportunity. Because when Naomi dies without an heir, something has to, be happen, has to happen to the land. And wouldn't it make sense for the nearest relative who himself had redeemed the land to receive this for his inheritance? Now, you might be sitting there thinking, wow, James, that's like seeing the worst in people and you're kind of uh, making some nasty assumptions. I, I think we see this playing out because as soon as this man realizes that Ruth is part of the equation, and as soon as he realizes that there actually might be another heir who will take over this once Naomi is dead, once Ruth is dead, he quickly backpedals from his original commitment. And we see this in, in chapter four, verse five. It says this, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. And so we see that this relative's choice that was made out of self-interest, although disguised as a really nice thing to do, is quickly backed out of once he realizes there's not going to be any long-term investment strategy here. It's actually just going to be uh, a short-term financial difficulty uh, that, that's going to have no, no long-term reward. 
And so he backs out of this, out of this decision, which allows Boaz to step up and do what he said he would. Uh, to, to marry Ruth, to redeem the land, and to raise up a family for her. And, and so we see here in this story, Boaz and Ruth, your outline says, both make choices of self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. We saw this earlier with Ruth as she left her father and mother and, and her land and, and united with Naomi and said, wherever you go, I'm going with you. We're in this together. Uh, Ruth did what Orpah couldn't do. We see this now with Boaz as we've seen two relatives of Elimelech. One of them says, no, I'm not going to do this. One of them says, yes, I will do this. We've talked about Ruth's decision already, but, but the question remains about Boaz. What causes Boaz to act in this way? And again, we, we can go through some options. Is it romantic love? Well, possibly that's part of it. Uh, is, there, is there something about, you know, is Boaz just like a really nice guy? Is that, is that what's going on here? Is Ruth uh, just such an amazing woman? Uh, there's, there's all these questions that we have about Boaz's motivation. Uh, but one of the interesting things that I noticed this week as I was looking at Matthew uh, chapter 1 and then looking at this story is that we actually learn something about Boaz in Matthew's gospel that we actually don't see in the Old Testament. And that is that Boaz, uh, if you look up in his family tree, he comes from the line of Rahab. Now, oftentimes genealogies will skip some generations or they'll have some gaps. And so it's not clear whether Rahab was Boaz's mom or his grandma or great-grandmother. But Rahab was the woman who, when when God's people entered the promised land in Jericho, Rahab was the the prostitute who joined herself to God's people, who said, I'm going to forsake my own people. I'm forsaking my own gods. I'm turning to God's people and I'm throwing myself on the mercy of the God of Israel. And it's this incredible act of faith that Rahab uh, enacts in in that moment. And we learn in Matthew's gospel that she's part of Boaz's family tree. And so I can just imagine that Boaz grew up hearing the stories of God's people, hearing the stories of faith, probably the story of Rahab as well. Uh, being aware of how close she was in, in his family tree. And I think it makes sense that when Boaz sees Ruth and he hears her story, a story of a woman who's left everything she ever knew to follow the God of Israel, to be united to God's people, I think Boaz sees in Ruth the very best of his family tree and family values. Here's another woman that has the same kind of faith that Rahab has had. Here's another woman who's just given everything for the God of Israel, who's given everything to be united to God's people. But what it says, here's a woman of character. Here's a woman who exemplifies everything my family stands for. And I'm, I'm pleased to have her join our family. I think that helps to explain why Boaz does what he does, why he acts the way that he does, because he recognizes in Ruth these incredible character traits, this incredible faith in the midst of difficulty. And so Boaz uh, makes this decision. We read in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and began, became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And in this scene where we, we realize that this baby that's born will actually be the, gra- the grandfather of King David, that amazing king. 
Uh, But more immediately, we see this great reversal of the earlier tragedy that Naomi had experienced. Uh, She had left the land. She had lost husband. She had lost her son. She had lost all these things. Now she's returned to the land with her daughter-in-law, her son-in-law, with their son who will be the heir to to the family line. And, And she comes to this place of having God provide for you. Choices are are things that we make every day. Uh, Some of them are big choices, other of them are are relatively small, and some actually change the course of our stories. Boaz and Ruth both made those self-sacrificial choices for the sake of another. And and when we think about it, that's actually what Christmas is all about. Uh, Your outline says that, that that is what Christmas is all about. It's about God's choice to send his son to a world in need. Uh, this self-sacrificial choice, this choice where there's, it wasn't for something that God was going to get out of it. It was for the sake of his love for us that he sent his son to a world in need. Self-sacrifice for the sake of another. And, and this is where things get kind of interesting in this story. We, we have at the end of the story, the choices of Rahab, or sorry, the choices of Ruth and Boaz leads to the birth of a baby boy in Bethlehem who's called the Redeemer, who brings salvation to this family and from whom a great king comes from his line. And of course, years and years later, because of God's choice, another baby will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, This baby will come from that same family line. He'll come from a line of kings and he himself will be the king of kings. Uh, This baby will be a redeemer, but not just of one family. This baby will be a redeemer and bring salvation to all who would put their trust in him. Not just from the nation of Israel, but from all the nations, people like Rahab and Ruth who turned their back on everything they knew before and trusted in God and God alone. This baby boy, of course, is Jesus, who was born that first Christmas to bring hope and life to all. And whatever choices you have to make this Christmas season, whatever your story is, I hope and I pray that you would choose Jesus and he would become the most important part of your story. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we just thank you for your example. And Father, as we see in these stories, uh, examples of choices of self-sacrifice for the sake of another, Father, we know that you're the ultimate example of that. That while we were sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins so we may have a relationship with you. And we just believe and and have faith and and we we can have that happen. So Father, I pray for everyone in this room that they would experience and know that truth in their heart of hearts. Father, thank you for your incredible gift of your son Jesus. And as we celebrate him this Christmas season, I pray that you'd fill our hearts with gratitude and joy. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.